here's the thing. We just indoctrinated a whole level of K to 12 students, a whole country into online learning. So the, and these are kids who spend a lot of time gaming, a lot of time on apps and on their phones, and they have an expectation of student experience that is far greater than, than what you typically find in, in the average Blackboard course. Um, we got to up our game. You know, and asking faculty to be user experience designers is a bit of a push. You know, I mean, it, the, the next generation of online learners is going to be pretty savvy. We've just given them a great taste of what that, you know, looks like in a bad way. Um, but they're going to be demanding a much higher quality product. So we've got our work cut out for us. Hello. Welcome to Season 2 of Ingenious You, the podcast where we talk about higher education, innovative practice, and leading-edge thinking. Your host is Melissa Morris Olson. The challenges facing colleges and universities short-term and in the years to come are immense, and yet many institutions are adapting in surprising and inspiring ways. In each episode of Ingenious U, we will talk with higher education thought leaders about the academic transformation that is underway. Our guests will include college and university leaders, faculty, innovators, futurists, and others who are thinking about and experimenting with new approaches. Be sure to hit subscribe to Ingenious U wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, you can rate and review this podcast and share with your colleagues and friends so they can join the conversation too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ingenious You where we consider the most urgent and provocative topics that are reshaping higher education, and we speak with higher ed's most creative and visionary leaders. I am joined for this episode by one of our most listened to guests from season one, Lori Polito. Lori is the chief executive officer of Ease Learning, a company that she founded in 2003. The company is focused on providing learning design services and technology solutions that transform the learner experience. They specifically focus on innovative learning design, customer-friendly help desk services, and cutting-edge learner analytics. In her capacity as CEO, she works closely with a wide range of higher ed institutions, corporate entities, and nonprofit organizations to help develop and deliver on their e-learning, face-to-face training, and blended learning. Lori, welcome back to the Ingenious You community. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now that we are nearing the end of the pandemic and many colleges and universities are beginning to plan for a return to campus life and operations, I would like to start by getting your opinion on what this means for online learning. I think, you know, what we've been hearing is that there is an awareness that face-to-face may resume, uh, but that online is here to stay. There's a predominant theme of that running through most of the institutions that we've been working with. Um, and I think what that's a signal of is that we've now indoctrinated all of these learners to these flexible models 
And I think there's a realization that having that high flex capability is something we all have to, not that we want to think that there's another pandemic brewing around the corner, but we've now seen, we've let Pandora's box open. And we've now seen that this modality is really um, not going anywhere. It's, it's, a, it's a necessary thing for us to upskill on. And I think more than anything else, it's disclosed how important learning design and student experience really are to be successful in that modality. Um, and we're seeing a lot of people double down on how are they planning on using this and being a little more strategic about it. Can you say a little bit more about that? Because I, I was curious, uh, given that, and I agree with you, online learning, high flex learning, whatever you know, adjectives you want to use to describe this is here uh, and it's going to be part of the equation going forward. Um, how do higher ed leaders need to be thinking about it as it relates to their overall strategy? And it sounds like where you were going here was starting with the notion that you do need to be strategic about this. I mean, it's a huge investment. You don't just say, I'm going to throw people in, as we have just learned. You don't say, uh, I'm going to throw everybody into the LMS and take what you've been doing in your classroom and upload it to Canvas and off you go and it's going to be a great student experience. That was pretty much an epic fail. Um, and everybody kind of acknowledges that's not the right way to do it. So then what is the right way to do it? Well, all kinds of questions, I think, emerged from that process. One of them is, what is the role faculty need to play in this? Um, suddenly giving them the role of user experience designer and online pedagogy guru is probably not in their pay grade and not something that many of them were ready to do or had the bandwidth to do. Um, so then you have the whole concept of, well, how are we incentivizing faculty? How are we thinking about content in an online format? Um, those conversations start to get very interesting. Um, thinking about who the target learner is. We did a survey um, of our clients and we put out there, you know, how many of you think uh, online is a strategic initiative? And 100% of the survey questions came back as yes. And uh, a very low percentage, I don't remember the exact percentage, but somewhere more like 20% said they actually had identified who the target learners are. Um, you know, thinking about how you're going to plan this strategy, who's at the table, who are the stakeholders? When you're planning a face-to-face -face program, it can be a little bit more siloed, but when you get into online learning, now the user experience involves IT and it, it involves maybe a different way of thinking about marketing, a different way of thinking about enrollment. Um, it becomes a whole different student journey from start to finish that requires infrastructure that your present day infrastructure may not be set up for. Um, so it really is a, a opening a whole host of things that need to be discussed. Um, and sometimes people don't even know what they don't know. So um, this is the, you know, we started our conversation pre uh, jumping in here, just getting acquainted again today with the idea that my life's been a little chaotic and I explained to you that I think some of that chaos is because a lot of the folks we're working with right now don't know what they need. Um, and these conversations are, are where, where, they're, where their heads are at right now. Well, and that's a great example of the challenge, isn't yeah. it? Um, I'm, I'm curious though, where the opportunities are, where do you see the opportunities in this current, uh, current moment in terms of online? I think that if, 
you look at the trends in higher education and how non-traditional learners um, are growing and traditional learners are declining. And then you look at the impact on the economy of COVID and you look at how retraining, reskilling, and, you know, there's a lot of jargon in the industry and we talk about lifelong learning, but people need access to reskill themselves rapidly. And that non-traditional target audience is ripe for online learning. Higher ed has, um, traditionally done a wonderful job with liberal arts education. And when you think about what that really means, it's a lot of soft skills that are a part of what we teach undergrads. And those soft skills are still the most coveted things that businesses are wanting people to bring to them when they graduate. So if you combine what higher education institutions are really good at doing, which is helping to foster a lot of that in the curriculum, with the idea that people need more digestible, consumable, accessible content, you have a whole new market you could be creating learning products for if you think about how to best design things and put those two things together. So I suggest that the opportunity is probably in addressing those credentialing, um, stackable other ways of designing curriculum, whether it's for a degree or, or around degrees to extend learning um, for that growing population of learners. And I think the people who get that right are gonna find themselves in an upswing. Hmm, that's great, those are great insights. So what else have you learned? Have you and your team learned as a result of the work you've been doing during the pandemic? and? Yes, you did. You did uh, describe your current uh, your current context as being very chaotic, um, and so obviously people are in the midst of trying to figure figure a lot of this out. But I'm curious, what other things you have learned or seen as you've been helping institutions get up to speed, um, and specifically maybe thinking about the faculty and what they need to be successful in delivering high quality experience? You know, I think one of the things we've learned is that our job is not done when we help someone build a course. Um, there is a need to know how to facilitate that course well. There is a need to know how to use the data to inform instruction. Um, there's a need for a continuous improvement methodology. And faculty are in need of, of support badly. Um, their time has been just crushed. Um, their role was not set up to um, have all of these ancillary things that they're now responsible for doing. Um, and I think that a lot of the mistrust around online learning that you feel when you're engaging with faculty has to do with the fact that they were thrown in, into this to a large extent. And a lot of those supports really need to be rethought um, you know, and we're tailoring our, our work now more into these ongoing continuous improvement types of relationships because there's such a need. That dovetails with uh, so much of what you said in our first interview in mm. season one, where you were talking about what you were seeing on the part of faculty. And I was really struck in that interview um, by some of the observations that you were making. And I think you even talked then about uh, how so many of the faculty you were working with were really fearful um, about this new world that they were venturing into. I think it was a very abrupt launch for many. Um, mm -hmm. And 
you know, we had conversations with some that we were working in an accelerated fashion with, and the biggest takeaway was they, they felt like they weren't serving the needs of their students. I mean, I had faculty telling me, you know, 30% of my students are failing this term because I just don't know how to teach engineering online, or I just can't figure out how to keep them engaged. Um, it was like they were reaching for a magic wand to try to do what had come much more naturally to them in a face-to-face -face setting. Um, but really thinking about how you do that in an, on, an online modality takes a lot of premeditation and a lot of understanding about how people learn when they interact with one another and content through technology. It's not the same thing. And faculty were not granted all of that knowledge. Um, you know, I mean, look, learning design is is a discipline where people can go and get a PhD. It's a completely separate discipline. You might be a professor of economics. It doesn't mean you're a professor of learning design. Um, so it's a very tall order to ask somebody to do that. You would never ask um, someone who doesn't have the skill set to put search engine optimization around your website. This is basically like building a website for learning. Um, and you know, it's not a native thing that people just come out of knowing content, knowing their content and then knowing how to portray that content in this modality. So, you know, they are scared. That's a lot to be asking of them. And, and to be honest with you, it really brought that, I think, to a head. Mm. Are you more hopeful about uh, the faculty? Uh, part of this as you look to the future? I am hopeful that people are now acknowledging what is involved in creating student experience. People get it. Um, they are either seeking learning design support internally or externally. Um, there is more training. Um, I think there's some room for improvement on what that training needs to consist of. And honestly, I think there just needs to be a really strong definition of roles. And maybe we don't try to make faculty learning designers, maybe we figure out how to budget to support them the right way. Um, and again, that that's a whole nother round of what we've learned. Um, schools don't have trouble budgeting for buildings and, and <laughs> things of that nature, but there's an entire infrastructure that has to go into supporting online learning and a library of courses and maintenance of those courses and technology and software and things that you use to create those things intelligently um, and just people who know how to manage that infrastructure. And many, many schools don't have those people on their team. Um, so the student experience is reflective of that. You know, I'm really glad that you said that because what I am seeing, what I have seen is uh, a lack of understanding oftentimes uh, at the administrative level about what it really takes to support uh, online learning, learning with technology uh, in a way that the student learning experience can be as effective as possible. And in some ways, uh, administrators maybe haven't had to worry so much about that with faculty in the classroom kind of doing their own thing um, behind closed doors, if you will. But once you go online, uh, you're making the learning experience uh, much more visible to everybody. Uh, and it does require uh, a much more intentional uh, design and way of supporting students and the faculty. So I'm, I, 
I am really glad that you raised that. And I mean, obviously, that's your that's your business. It's interesting to see how people want to differentiate themselves as well in that space, because when you aren't relying on the physical structures on your campus to be your differentiators, you have to really think about why one MBA program is different than another or why your version of something is going to stand out and actually get enrollments, especially when you take the geography out of the equation. Anybody can have those enrollments now. So you have to be thinking about that differentiator because online is online. And if I live in California, but the school happens to have a great online program and they're in New York, what's the difference? Um, so it's changing the way you think about differentiation. And if you think about the level of quality that people want to engage with in, in just think about the gaming world, the way graphics have been enhanced, the way, you know, I, I know I have teenagers and here's the thing. We just indoctrinated a whole level of K to 12 students, a whole country into online learning. So the, and these are kids who spend a lot of time gaming, a lot of time, on apps and on their phones, and they have an expectation of student experience that is far greater than, than what you typically find in, in the average Blackboard course. Um, we got to up our game, you know, and asking faculty to be user experience designers is a bit of a push, you know. I mean, it, the, the next generation of online learners is going to be pretty savvy. We've just given them a great taste of what that, you know, looks like in a bad way. Um, but they're going to be demanding a much higher quality product. So we've got our work cut out for us. You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind, with Baypath University. Our innovative Doctorate of Education in Higher Ed Leadership and Organizational Studies ABD Degree Completion Program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started. Our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu edd. That's baypath.edu edd. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started. What thoughts do you have about what adult and non-traditional learners need 
in their learning experiences in order to be successful? Is it is it different at all than the traditional age students? I think it is. And I think leveraging online as a modality for that target audience, I think there's a few criteria in that that should be a part of the design thinking. Um, one of the things that I would say is a very big priority is relevancy, making curriculum relevant and really letting them touch and feel and be a part of what's going on with those problems that need solving, not just being passive listeners. We're still Zooming people to death and recording talking heads, and that's not what they want to pay tuition for. They want tangible skills that they can apply and use right away, and they come in with prior life experience and knowledge and things they want to integrate those new skills with, and they don't want to wait to do it. Um, so giving them an approach in a course that has them jumping in and creating things and thinking through problems and solving and, and discussing and having discourse and learning from one another, that is the definition of engagement for them. And being talked at is not. So if we think about persistence and retention, we have to think about not only what the comfort level of the faculty is and how they normally would present something, but what the student is actually wanting to consume. And all of a sudden that matters. Um, so I think relevancy, I think modularity, really bite-sized pieces because they're not gonna sit down and have, you know, if you think about your typical undergrad, you go to class a couple of days a week, and then you have all this time to spend in the library. I mean, I know that's what my undergrad experience was like. These people have kids, they have jobs, they have commutes. They need 30 minutes here and there to be able to get through what they need to get through, and then a concerted block of time on a weekend where they can create their summative assessment and submit, and then reset for the next week. It's a totally different flow. We need to be able to make sure that what we're asking and the expectations and the amount of time we're asking them to put into something and the duration of time that it takes to complete something is not a lifetime commitment, but it's, it's blocked in a way that fits around all those other things in their life. Um, and you'll see programs that thrive online doing this really successfully. They've changed the length of a term. They've thought about different kinds of assessment. Uh, and those programs are wildly successful and they have enrollments. There's a reason. So I, I would study who's winning, right? So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So can you give me an example just to, to, to drill this down a little bit deeper? So what, what might a highly successful program that's been structured to support adult learners online look like? So when you say modularity, uh, you're talking about, we'll, we'll say more about what that actually looks like for somebody who may be uh, very new to online, online course design. You know, I hate to, to give a plug here for any particular program, but I just recently encountered one that I was extremely intrigued by. And the price point is earth shattering, the topic is earth shattering, and the construct of how it was put together is extremely revolutionary. And I think it exemplifies really, really strong design. And I, I hesitate to go evangelizing something. I had nothing to do with it, by the way. Um, I, I am gonna say it because I think it's a really good example. Um, Boston University just launched a $24,000 MBA, a fully online MBA. 
And they went with a very sequential modular approach with very relevant kind of topics. Um, and I, I just looked at the way they're positioning it and the way they designed it. And I thought this is an exemplar and it's apparently getting a lot of traction. So kudos to the design team there because that was really out of the box thinking and it's got a price point that could really be game changing as well. That's the other piece of this is how do we reduce the cost? Because higher ed is prohibitive. Now, I've heard you talk about the importance of aligning the learning experience with workforce skills and lifelong learning. And you began to get into that uh, a little while ago. Can you say more about what you mean by this and any examples of this sure. that you can so, share? So, um, you know, there's a large gap in workforce right now, and you'll hear companies complaining that they just can't find graduates that are job ready. And there are some key skills that are in high demand. Many of them are in tech in the medical field. Um, there's a whole bunch of them. You can Google it. There's a list. Um, and what's not happening is a connection between, um, you know, a, a degree and what actually happens when someone hires someone. Um, there is a way of thinking about what's going on with students in a degree program and how we can actually look for opportunities to either embed a connection to industry, even foster a relationship that's going to bring students to those connections in the course of their study. Um, and then also, um, you know, be thinking about overt connections or at least providing ways in the curriculum or in some of the data and analytics that are garnered around the learning to be able to shed some light on what skills are emerging, what skills have been deliberately embedded in those assessments and activities that they're acquiring and help the students develop a vocabulary for those things so that when they graduate, they have a portfolio of things they've done and that they can show those and actually speak to the skills that they're bringing. There has to be an overt using learning design connection to those um, embedding those skills into the actual course. Uh, and we've spent a lot of time not only doing that, but measuring that, tracking that, and thinking about what those dashboards need to look like. And can you give an example of some of those workforce skills that are most in demand? So if you're going to start with, uh, you know, what's interesting, two, what um, we had looked up what the top 10 most desirable skills are. And it's interesting because most of them are soft skills. Um, I actually have a slide in one of my presentations that has all 10 listed, but I can rattle off just a couple, but communication, leadership, problem solving, um, they're soft skills. And when you couple those with, you know, a topic like IT security, um, you know, you can either give somebody very didactic ways of going through the knowledge that they need, or you can create really creative scenario based learning where they have to problem solve and communicate and, and you're giving them those soft skills in the context of the hard skills. And then you can actually ask for very specific 
project work from the student that they can demonstrate these and you can quantify it with a rubric. And then the student actually can feel like they've walked out with tangible skills that they can talk about in an interview. So making those connections, if you look, um, I know MC, Burning Glass, there's a lot of different taxonomies out there now that scrape through job posting websites and they organize this information um, and schools subscribe to this raw data on what, what the market's looking for. The problem is nobody really knows what to do with any of that, and, and it never makes it into the course design. So we're actually integrating that kind of data into our course design. Um, we've actually built some technology that lets us link those things directly to the assessments and the assignments we're creating. Um, and this is giving us the ability to not only track, did the student get a good grade? Did they complete it? Did they meet their learning outcomes? But did they actually acquire those skills in the course of their study as well? And when you start looking at things that way, um, a whole world opens up. There's even uh, alternative lenders now that will lend money strategically to degree and non-degree programs based on how de-risked that program is based on whether or not you can align to certain skills. There's a whole nother realm of, of industry that's starting to be created around the idea that if someone is closing this gap, those students getting an education where those skills are front and center will be more likely to pay those loans back. Um, there are several organizations now looking at that, uh, which is very interesting. So it's, it's an indicator that there's a strong priority on whether or not curriculum is thinking this way. Let me let me switch gears here. We have a couple minutes left, a few minutes left, and I, I want to uh, ask you about OPMs. And uh, one of the things that you have touched on here at the beginning of our conversation is just the importance of uh, having a, a good uh, a sufficient infrastructure in place to support uh, a high quality uh, approach to online learning. And particularly for smaller institutions that don't have that infrastructure, I think there's a real uh, temptation to wanna hire somebody else to, to do some or all of that, to provide some or all of the services. And as you know, the range of um, online uh, managers uh, is is enormous and growing bigger um, by the day. The options that are available to to schools. So, do you have any advice to offer for an institution that's exploring whether or not to partner with an external vendor uh, in order to launch or scale their online um, programs? I would say understand all of the options that that are out there. Um, and really try to explore a cross-section of those options and then understand it, your internal capabilities. There is certainly a role for OPMs. Um, there's also a role for unbundled providers that can group together to provide similar services, probably at a lower cost. Um, and I know that the idea of OPMs now unbundling uh, is also a thing. So they're realizing this as well. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is to really think about your internal capabilities, where you want to be and how much ownership you want to have over those processes and over the direction. Um, and then really look for partners that fit 
that end vision. We, we've participated in many RFPs and, and, you know, positioned ourselves around, we're not an OPM. I have no desire to be an OPM. Um, but clearly looking at there is a time and a place where it makes sense to go that direction. And then there is a time and a place where alternatives and other services can be kind of a la carte fitting around the, some of the services that are maybe internally perfectly sound. And maybe you're trying to build those capacities internally, really understanding how, how the different combinations of how that could look. Are there some internal capacities that are just really critical to develop for I the mean, long run? Really, that's a variation for each school. It really is. Um, I think at a minimum, there needs to be a task force that understands all the parts and that ultimately can be the decision-making body for the university to really represent the brand. Um, and, and where you want, you should control your own destiny to some extent, um, at, at any institution, I would recommend that. But I, I definitely think that having the right people at the table to kind of understand the thing that they're outsourcing and to still maintain a decision, uh, making power over that, I think is very important. There's not, some OPMs have a reputation of not being so transparent. That's kind of starting to, to, to unravel as well. More transparency is what everybody is pitching now. Um, you know, we work in a very different kind of way. We're, we're much more of a partner and not a vendor. We, we have that open transparency from the get-go. Um, it's a very collaborative process to build with us. Um, we don't come in and take things away from the faculty. We actually work with them and upskill them and try to, you know, bridge some of those understandings, um, but not ask them to do the things that really is not in their bailiwick. Um, you know, it really runs the gamut, but I think ultimately each institution kind of needs to have a, a sense of purpose and a sense of self, because otherwise you really get a little bit lost in, in some of those worlds. That's what I've seen. And I, we've actually come to the rescue of people who are leaving OPMs because they felt like they kind of lost their way. Mm. Are there any other red flags? Let me just ask you this. If you are engaged with an OPM, um, are, there, are there some red flags to keep on your radar? Um, you know, I think I think the duration, I think you really need to understand the finances and what you're signing up for in any kind of long-term engagement. Um, you really need some people at the table from the institution who understand what, what the implications are, because the idea of going with an OPM to some extent is that the OPM is taking the risk. Um, they're putting marketing dollars behind a program and trying to take that risk in exchange for some upside uh, on the return which if you're in a position where you don't want to take that risk, then that may be very beneficial to you. But on the flip side, understand what you're signing up for and the duration of time and what that upside that they create is going to look like. Because if the majority of the upside is actually going to the OPM, you have to be willing to say that that was what you wanted to do. And many times we talk to schools that are saying, well, you know, all our revenue is going to the OPM. Well, you guys signed that deal. <laughs> Did you read it? Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. I think you really need to have some, 
some business savvy conversations around what it is you want and what you don't want and be driving your own destiny. Lori, let me, I've got one final question for you. And it's really to, to ask you to maybe step back to the balcony and uh, think about the most important advice or most compelling advice that you would offer to higher ed leaders right now as it relates to the structure and delivery of learning experiences for today's learners. So based on everything that you are seeing, um, the experiences that you and your folks have had, what would you tell uh, higher ed leaders out there about how they need to be thinking and structuring to deliver the best learning experience. I think the first thing I would say learners. is make sure you can put the right people in the right seats. Don't ask things of people that is not in their bailiwick and really think about optimizing a student experience by having the experts on a particular thing be the ones who are guiding that particular thing. So in other words, if faculty are experts on content, help support them on the content. If learning designers are expert on learning design, have a learning designer working with the faculty. If you need to walk before you run, so figure out what the essence of what you want your student experience to be in a small framework first before you scale. And think about the complications and implications of the choices that you make. You don't necessarily need five different synchronous um, you know, webinar tools. Think about things strategically, create some oversight. And I know this is like undoing the silos, but this can't be something that happens 800 different ways or the student experience will automatically be fragmented. Um, it's it, You have to find the leadership to really think about what has to be a pillar and what can be custom, but it'll never scale and be operational if everything is custom. You can't have nothing but a bunch of unicorns running around. So thinking about how, what can we push the limit on saying, okay, we have to have certain things consistent for the student when they come into a program. We can't have 12 courses that all look different and all use different technologies and all have different learning approaches. That's a terrible student experience. So how do we, it's not limiting academic freedom. It's a little bit of a mindset shift. It's, it's just understanding that the environment we're in needs to have some degree of control. You wouldn't have 50 different constructs of what a lecture hall is going to look like, right? We all know how to behave in a lecture hall. We know where the furniture is. We know where the whiteboard is. We know what the decorum is. You kind of have to get into a groove with how that's all going to function in your tech stack as well. And you have to kind of have everybody swimming in the same direction. I think the biggest takeaway is make those decisions at a higher level um, and, and try to figure out how to support the people in the right roles to then carry that, that through and figure out how to incentivize people because it's a lot of work. Yeah, that's good. And that's not always on the radar for, for folks, is it? Um, I do have, I'm, I misled you. I have one follow-up question because for, because I'm, I'm thinking if I'm, you know, if I'm somebody, let's say I'm a provost listening to this and I just don't have the resources in place at my institution, where do I go? I mean, is that, is that when I might reach out to uh, a company like yours and, and ask 
to talk about partnering or uh, what would be a good first step if I have I mean, very little we have those conversations all going. the time I think right sizing to someone's um, internal resources figuring out a way to connect yourselves to what they need and filling the gaps where they have those gaps that is something we do very well um, in terms of not having resources like not having funding mm -hmm. Um, we've had some folks say, you know, we have a donor who wants to help us build this program. We have CARES money. We have, um, you know, we know this is a strategic investment. We're cutting other things that aren't thriving in order to have a budget here. Um, be realistic about what it's going to take to get something off the ground, but do the marketing as well. Don't just build it and then they will come. Do the marketing, make sure you're going to get a return on your investment, and then build incrementally. Um, you know, we have fee-for-service marketing partners and enrollment coaching partners, and, and, and it's really important to think about all of those needs, not just the design. Because if you're making the investment in building something, you want to make sure that the seats are filled. You really have to do the homework to understand where the market opportunities are. Some more Solson, and you've been listening to Ingenious You. My thanks to our production assistants, Madeline Olson and Marcy Moore. Ingenious You is a production of Chellup, the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Baypath University. Check out our website at baypath.edu/chellup for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed monthly webinar series. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share Ingenious You with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. In next week's episode, I sit down with three-time college president, Dr. David Horner. Currently serving as president of the American College in Greece, David is a serial higher education innovator. He has strengthened and transformed three uniquely distinct institutions. In our conversation, David shares his insights about the process he has followed to determine the appropriate strategic direction and to find the opportunities that have contributed to enhanced viability at each institution. You will not want to miss out on this conversation and to hear David's thoughts about what it takes to maintain an innovative mindset in this increasingly challenging and complex environment. That's all for now. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.